Hello, it's Tuesday, the 23rd of November. I'm Gary Bowerman. On today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Dan Lin, co-founder of Singapore-based Zuzu Hospitality. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. So on today's show, I'll be chatting all things travel and hospitality in Southeast Asia with Dan Lin, co-founder of Singapore-based Zuzu Hospitality. Dan's career also includes management roles with Expedia, the Air Asia Expedia joint venture, and Elon. So Dan, thanks very much for coming on to the show. How are you doing today? And how's life right now in Singapore? Hey, Gary, thanks for having me. Um, I am I'm feeling good today. It's a uh... A stormy winter's day, if we have those uh, here in Singapore, and life is increasingly normal. I think, um, you know, if you're a time traveler from two or three years ago, you may still notice quite a few strange things of checking in and checking out. But for those of us who are used to all that stuff, it feels about as normal as it has for the last few years. So it feels feels good here now. Yeah, increasingly normal. That's a great euphemism, Dan. Um, let, let's, let's start by going back. We've got plenty to, to catch up on, but you read economics and management at Oxford at the turn of the millennium. So how did travel and tourism become a, a career path for you? Was it something you had in mind back then? Absolutely. Um, it was the career I think I'd always known I'd end up doing. I from Cornwall in the UK, uh, which is right down at the southwest. And it's the primary tourism destination within the UK market. Um, and so I'd always worked in local attractions and restaurants and bars and, and the like, and always felt like travel and tourism was what I would end up getting into uh, over the longer run. So after graduating, you worked at McKinsey for a couple of years and then for a venture capital firm. Uh, and then you joined Expedia and you stayed there for nearly six years. That was from 20, 2009 onwards, which was a period that sort of presaged rapid growth in, in global travel, particularly here in Asia Pacific. So what were the key learnings that you took from that role? Yeah, I was, it was definitely kind of the, the point, I think, of the online travel growth where it really went global. So obviously I wasn't at Expedia at the very beginning, but I was there as they were, as they were sort of growing and moving into more and more countries, first in Europe and then um, in Asia, which is what I ended up doing um, a fair bit of. And I think you know, the, the couple of takeaways I took from that were over the long run or over the medium run, maybe, travel is, is increasingly going to move online. And yes, it was all at different points and different phases and different parts of travel were going to get there faster and slower. But fundamentally, that concept of turning the travel agent screen around, giving the information um, directly to the consumer, letting them make their own informed choices was going to be the winning proposition from a consumer perspective. And that meant it was all going to go digital and all be online. And then the other thing that you know, I saw happening and would also hear stories about how it also happened you know, prior to me getting there was that every time there was a crisis, that move online would accelerate and it would reset up to a higher level. And um, so whether that were the, were, was things like the global financial crisis or much more sort of micro crises that affected you know, particular areas like Fukushima in Japan or the stories that you would, would be told about what happened to the travel industry post 9-11. Um, every time there was one of these major disruptive events in the travel industry, consumer behavior came back faster 
online uh, in terms of booking, exploring, and, and sort of being inspired for travel. And the travel industry would reset as a more digital industry every time one of these crises happened, which is you know what we're seeing, I think, um, again today, uh, that these sort of discontinuities that happen in the travel industry, normally more locally, but occasionally globally, and those are the things that really accelerate change um, and they, they accelerate the underlying changes that were happening and, and, and you never go back to quite the same um, sort of more offline travel agent distribution types approaches um, that, that we used to see. Yeah, that's a really good point. I guess so much has happened over the last decade in digital travel here in, in Asia Pacific, particularly in China. You know, a lot of the trends have come out of China. But I think it's easy to forget just how important Expedia was, isn't it? Back in the, in the sort of early part of this century. Uh, Expedia was the leader in, in what you said, moving that that travel agent screen and turning it around towards the the traveler themselves, giving them that freedom to be able to to book and choose their own travel. Yeah, if you, you know, if you, the the first decade of online travel was about this really this kind of two or three way flight, fight between Expedia and Travelocity and Orbitz uh, in the United States, and then you had these sort of companies coming out of Europe like LastMinute.com. You know, all these companies, or, or at least those brands, all still exist in various ways, but perhaps they're not you know, where a lot of the, the latest sort of you know, innovations are, are coming now. But you know, back in the sort of early, mid-2000s and even into the, you know, the first half of the 2010s, you know, these were, you know, were and still are you know, important companies that certainly drove a lot of innovation in the early stage of the online migration. So that role for Expedia, was that in Singapore, Dan? No, so I started off um, in their Seattle office. I started off um, doing um, global roles. I led a bunch of work around, about working with the GDSs on all of our GDS contracts. I, I then built an analytics organization and a data science team and then um, ran the global search organization. So I did that for a period of time before being asked to, to help with the global expansion and, and in this case with Asia Pacific. And Expedia had built a great business down in Australia um, and then was just starting to sort of take that team and use that team to build out the rest of the Asia operations. And so moved it actually originally to, to Sydney, but spent all my time on a plane up to mainly Japan um, and then you know started to think about Southeast Asia and build up the uh, Expedia presence in this region. And that's what then eventually led to us spinning off the, the um, AirAsia Expedia joint venture. Which brings us neatly into to discuss that. You, you moved on to, to the newly formed AirAsia Expedia joint venture, which has since been dissolved. What, what was the focus of your role there? I was sort of you know, part of the founding team. I ran that business. And the idea behind why we did that joint venture is we, we looked a little bit at what had happened to Expedia in Europe and some of the challenges Expedia was facing being a one-stop travel shop. The you know, within the broader Expedia group, obviously there are different brands like Hotels.com that is very much just for buying your hotel rooms. But you know, Expedia was always promising the consumer you could come and have all of your travel needs met, your flights, your, your hotels, and anything else you might need. And the problem with Expedia in Europe was that it couldn't find an economic solution to get the low-cost carriers, Ryanair and EasyJet principally, um, to join in that platform. Because those low-cost carriers make so much money from ancillary sales, from selling them the hotel room or selling them baggage or selling them all these other things that the OTAs were never great at selling. And so the thesis behind why it made sense to do the joint venture with AirAsia was that you wanted them to be economically incented to build 
um, a one-stop travel shop like Expedia. Um, and we also, um, un- under that joint venture, we built a one-stop travel shop um, for AirAsia called AirAsia Go, which added all hotels and other things um, into that business and did phenomenally well. And in, in, in a way has become you know, one of, I think, probably you know, three or four proof points that convinced them to go after the super app strategy that they've since pursued successfully. And then, and this one is of particular interest to me, Dan, you, you became a board director at Elon, which was once the direct competitor of C-Trip, which is now trip.com. When I lived in China in the early 2000s, C-Trip and Elon uh, were going head to head. You know, they, they were competitors in the digital space. C-Trip or trip.com later acquired Elon. What did you learn from that experience? Two things. You know, one is that to treat with skepticism, anybody who claims to be a China expert who hasn't literally lived and breathed and worked in that market for 10 to 20, 30 years. I mean, the, 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 more, the more time you spend working in China, the, the more you realize how little you know. And it was always fascinating just how quickly the competitive dynamic would shift, how quickly a new, a new type of competitive threat would emerge. And you, you just have to be so deeply absorbed into that market to really understand it. You know, and, and you know, now being much more focused on Southeast Asia, I would never claim to have a deep insight of, of China because you can't just be dipping in and out of it. I think you've really got to be there uh, an awful lot. And then I think, you know, sort of linked to that, the, the online travel market or the travel market more broadly is obviously such a huge and lucrative market um, that you can't rest on your laurels because there'll always be, you know, a well-funded innovator building a new way of doing things, trying to outcompete you, trying to take uh, that market away from you. Um, and whether it was, you know, uh, trip now trip.com, or then other folks who've come along later, like Meituan, who've taken an awful lot of the budget end of the hotel market uh, in China off of um, trip. You know, there's always somebody who's going to be fiercely fighting and will be well enough capitalized um, to go after taking that market away from you. So you've got to be constantly um, reinventing and rebuilding your digital efforts if you want to compete in that market. And I'd say probably almost all markets. Yeah, would certainly agree. Were you there, at Long, at the time of the acquisition by Citrix? Uh, no, no. So I, 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 finished, um, I finished my role, uh, my board role, uh, by, the, by the time that came about. But I think you know, my sense is that there the, the became a, a view that in terms of pure play OTAs, it was trending towards, a, if not quite a monopoly, it was effectively heading that way. And that effectively meant that somebody like C-Trip could, could, would be a better owner of that business because they could pull out an awful lot of costs on the back end, leverage the massive scale they had to give the better unit economics into the Elon business. And, um, it wasn't worth, in the end, going head to head and trying to trying to beat that. You know, they'd, they'd been they'd been beaten. Yeah, that's a fair insight. So after that, you you became a board member for Move and Pick Hotels while you were founding Zuzu Hospitality, which was five years ago in 2016. Dan, five years is a very long time in travel, particularly given the context of the past 20 months. But when you look back, you know, what were your objectives for Zuzu uh, at the at the very outset? So I, I founded Zuzu along with um, my co-founder Vikram, and Vikram um, was with Expedia, and we both had seen at Expedia that this promise of the internet wasn't quite being fulfilled in the long tail of independent hotels. It's the the promise of the internet 
was always there was that cracking book about the long tail. Uh, it was this idea that these like little niches could truly thrive um, because the internet kind of brought us all together as a global community. And when we looked at the data at Expedia, what we saw was the big chains, the IHGs, the Hiltons, the Marriotts, taking you know an unfair share of the demand that platforms like Expedia could produce because those chains could do a phenomenal job in investing in the digital capabilities, the IT infrastructure, the real-time revenue management to actually optimize for this new highly transparent digital world. Whereas the little independent hotelier, who is perhaps fantastic at running the operations within their four walls, couldn't take the time, didn't have the understanding, didn't come into the industry to get really good at technology and revenue management and data science. And they were being left behind. And we wanted to create something that would give them a fair crack because we felt that fundamentally customers wanted a little independent hotel. They wanted that variety and diversity. And we had to sort of do something to try and level the playing fields to let those independent hoteliers thrive. So having identified your market space and and got the business up and running, how were things going leading up to the pandemic? Well, I, I, I think things are going great. I mean, we were growing each year obviously you know the first year from from nothing but you know every year we were able to sort of double or treble the number of hotels we had we'd grown from an initial launch market of indonesia we'd grown to have operations across southeast asia we'd scaled up to about 1500 hotels um we had unit economics that i think worked for our customers and worked for us and and we felt like we were on a a really healthy growth trajectory to keep on scaling up. I mean, there are, there are 60,000 independent hotels just in Southeast Asia and you know 600,000 globally. So we felt like we had a long runway of just scaling in this region and then gradually you know, expanding our geographical scope into you know, South Asia and then eventually other parts of the world and felt you know, we had a pretty comfortable and pretty predictable path ahead of us you know, right the way up until early January of 2020, when we started hearing news of this stuff coming out of uh, Wuhan. You're based in Singapore. You mentioned there that you had an Indonesia office and that you have operations across the region. Is that in most of the countries of Southeast Asia? Yeah, so our, our, our biggest operating markets are Indonesia, Thailand and Malaysia. Um, but we do have teams in um, Vietnam and the Philippines also, and we do serve some hotels in, in, in other markets like Cambodia. Uh, and 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 obviously, you know, we have a, a, some hotels here in Singapore as well. Um, but we you know, we we really are a you know, pan Southeast Asian operation. So tell us a little bit more about COVID nineteen and how that's impacted your business and how have you responded? Yeah, well, so you know, obviously for your listeners, you know, I'm not going to say anything particularly surprising. You know, we like the industry more broadly have been hard hit. Um, we'd always um, structured our relationship with our partner hotels on a revenue share basis, because we always felt it was the right thing to be very aligned economically. The more money the hotels made, the more money we made, but then obviously the less they made, the less we made. So we you know, we tried to avoid fixed costs and fixed fees because we felt like that would create a, a misalignment in interest. And so like the industry, our revenues obviously um, you know, fell very severely you know, as we kind of went through February, March of 2020, um, and we were left 
kind of, you know, like the industry, having to think through, okay, how long is this going to go on for? Um, it was very unclear. So we made you know, a lot of hard decisions to cut back on any initiative that didn't feel like it was going to be you know, absolutely critical to help our hoteliers over the next 12 months. They all got cut. Uh, we slightly refocused our geographies. We've been experimenting with, could we take the business into Australia? We pulled back um, on, on that um, experiment. We said, we're going to just focus on Southeast Asia. We're going to cut um, a lot of sort of long-term projects and just focus on the shorter-term pieces and really cut our cost base back. And then I think you know, once we'd sort of dealt with the immediate sort of, you know, okay, we know, you know, we, we're at a point where we can now uh, operate for this uncertain amount, we really switched our focus to, okay, well, what are the, what are the new challenges that hotels are going to face? And you know, one of the things our hotel partners were telling us is, you know, the more you can do to help us strip down our back offices, help us automate our processes, help us take costs out of our operations, the better. And so we built an entire solution about accounts payable and accounts receivable that we call Easy Payments, um, which is all about streamlining and automating the back office, um, removing the need for a lot of accounting time, automating the, the payment flows, helping a little bit with the actual cash flow um, uh, profile um, for these hotels in terms of collecting their monies off the big OTAs, and helping make sure that they don't accidentally leave money at the OTAs through breakage, which was something that we knew was a problem in the industry. And so we built that solution and rolled that out um, to pretty much all of our hotels. And that's, I think, been very welcomed by them. And then we, we also started shifting our focus a little bit to building out more direct um, solutions. We've been very focused with our tech stack and our revenue management capability on utilizing the existing demand channels that were out there. But a lot of these small hotels had never really built out their own direct channel. And we we knew that it was important for them to find ways to be able to communicate directly with their customers um, over this sort of quieter period. And so we, we built up all of our direct capabilities with our own booking engine and website solutions, which we've rolled out um, to, to, to them. And so, you know, through that, I think we sort of positioned ourselves well for when the recovery was going to happen. And we felt like, you know, if we keep building, we keep delivering, we help our hotels recover faster we would be able to you know, continue to deliver you know, value to our customers. And we'd also be able to continue to grow our customer base. And we, we fortunately we have, you know, we've, we've gone from about 1500 hotels that we worked with at the beginning of COVID to about 20, 2600, I think um, today. So we've, we've been able to continue to, to grow our customer base because I think, I think there is a realization from the hotelier community more broadly that, to the extent that having a digital presence and, and pricing intelligently was important, it's only going to become more and more important as this recovery now starts to flow through. That's fascinating. So basically, I mean, across the hotel industry, a lot of this has been actually how they can operationally become leaner and more efficient. And as you say, connect more directly with their, with their customers. Are these things that probably would have happened anywhere over time and this has been accelerated? Or do you think that there was a reluctance to actually move through these processes before the pandemic? It was happening because, I mean, you know, the industry is smart and the industry could see that the consumer was shifting online. The, the consumer was buying more and more stuff through online travel agencies or through direct websites. So the industry is not dumb. They know they have to be there. 
They know that that means they need much more proactive revenue management because it's not just here's my price for next year, peak and off peak. It's got to be much more fluid based on what's happening in the market. But this has undoubtedly accelerated it because, you know, there would be the odd hotelier we would meet who would nod their head and say, yep, everything you're saying makes sense. I should be doing all that digital stuff. I should be online. But the reality is I've got this China outbound tour operator and it grows 20% a year and I'm doing fine just servicing them. And that doesn't need any of this stuff. Well, now we're facing, you know, 20 months of that not existing at all. And maybe another, who knows, another one to two years before the China outbound market truly recovers. And so an awful lot of hoteliers who were just getting rich and a little bit lucky off the boom in China outbound are now saying, no, you're right. I need a more diversified set of demand. I need a set of demand that's actually tuned into all these digital channels. I need that to be automated. I need it to be efficient from a cost perspective, and this is the right solution that Zuzu has that, that, that can partner up to deliver that. So it's undoubtedly accelerated that. Great insights, Dan. So based in Singapore, you've had a front seat at the attempts to restart travel in the city-state uh, through the vaccinated travel lane scheme. It's been a bit protracted in terms of speed, but as we sit here at the end of November 2021, how would you assess Singapore's reopening progress and, and that of Southeast Asia as a whole? Look, you can understand the, if you will, the, maybe the political imperative that has meant that Singapore has both, one, wanted to open up because they recognise as a small country they had to, but also not do it too quickly because at the same time they were keeping things quite controlled in terms of the domestic rules here. So the steps that Singapore have taken with the vaccinated travel lanes to you know, one, two, then three, four, five, six, seven, you know, you know, sort of progressively adding these countries with lots of sort of rules and quotas. It's getting us to a place where it's certainly a heck of a lot easier as a resident here to reconnect with the world, whether that's for leisure purposes or business purposes. It's getting a heck of a lot easier. It's still not at the point where it's made Singapore particularly attractive to come here, certainly for leisure travel. Um, and then the government probably aware of that and comfortable with that. Um, it's certainly you know, a little bit easier to get here now for business travel um, if you happen to come from certain countries, which were the big important ones. I guess you, can, the, you understand the political imperative of sort of not doing the travel thing that much faster than the broader opening up of things domestically. My frustration, and I think the industry's frustration, is always that the decisions you make about the border are, are just so immaterial via V, whatever decisions you make domestically. The decisions you make about how to manage an endemic situation for the 5 million people moving about the country are multiples more important than whatever decisions you make around the border once the virus is in a country. And so I, I, I feel like Singapore and Southeast Asia more broadly has been a little bit slow to just be like, to, to put that perspective and put, put the border into the correct perspective of the decisions we make there actually really don't matter that much anymore because it's what we do domestically that's going to manage the flow of this endemic situation. And I, I would commend you know Thailand and even more so Cambodia for going a little bit more aggressively and say, hey, once we got to a point where one, COVID was endemic within our population, um, so, so you're no longer keeping it out. And two, we protected the vast majority, particularly the most vulnerable within our population, that both of those countries have then quickly gone to a, 
hey, we're going to just broadly reopen. And yes, we're going to put some sensible safeguards, like you have to be vaccinated to come in, because we don't want to risk you putting any more burden on our healthcare systems. And then if you want, you know, you can also insist on a test. I'm not sure what point the test is when, when, when it's already broadly endemic within the country. But if you want to put that extra safety step in, I don't think anybody really minds that. But broadly reopening to everybody, as Thailand and now Cambodia have done, is a far more sensible sort of approach relative to everything else that's going on, I think. And so I would commend Thailand and Cambodia for getting there. I think Malaysia is on the cusp of getting there. They've said by the end of the year, possibly in December, I think they will broadly be in the same place, but we don't know yet. Uh, and then, you know, Indonesia still being a little bit more wary, still got quarantines to enter. Vietnam still broadly closed. So I think we're in different spots still uh, in the rest of the region. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. You made, you made a good point there in terms of Singapore's priorities here. As you said, you know, it's not really just about introduce, reintroducing leisure travel, whereas in Cambodia and Thailand, it pretty much is. Uh, Singapore has this need to develop two-way air travel because, as you said, the nature of its economy. It has been moving forward piece by piece. They like to use this word calibrated reopening. I think we're up to about 21 vaccinated travel lanes right now. You know, how do you see this going from here? When do you think greater liberalization of air travel will return to Singapore? I would, I mean, look, I, I think it will happen almost without us noticing, but it will continue to be this step-by-step approach. So, you know, one thing that's happening, obviously, is that they're, they're opening these new vaccinated travel lanes between an origin and a destination. Um, sometimes coordinated, sometimes unilateral, depending on the rules at the other end. But the second thing that, that, that's happening is they are gradually increasing the quotas of how many people can come in on those VTLs. And, uh, and so I think, interestingly, what, what, what that means is, you know, you get these, certainly at the beginning, you've got these bizarre situations where two flights, two direct flights by the same airline from an origin such as London into Singapore could be priced massively differently because one of them was classified as a VTL flight because Singapore Airlines had been given a certain number of VTL quota by the government, and the other one was not classified as a VTL flight. And the VTL flights could be you know, two to three times as expensive because everybody wanted to fly on the particular flight that would give you quarantine-free access. My suspicion is that what will happen is that Singapore will continue to add more countries to this VTL scheme and will perhaps accelerate that pace. But I think behind the scenes, the more important thing is how much they ramp up the quotas. Because if they ramp up the quotas really quickly, and they have gone from sort of three or 4,000 at the beginning up to 10,000 arrivals a day today, if, they, if that quota starts to ramp up to 20,000, 30,000, well, all of a sudden, Singapore Airlines can classify a lot more of its flights. You know, just in the, in the last few days, they added, I think, the, the Manchester-Singapore leg, for example, to their previous London-Singapore leg as being VTL classified. So I think as you see that quota go up um, faster and faster, more and more flights get added in, I think we will get to a point where we start to not notice some of these weird discontinuities caused by VTL, and flights will effectively be an awful lot more liberated. And I, I think by the end of Q1, it'll feel a lot more normal um, than, than it does today. I mean, today, if you look at you know, the only... The only sort of big markets around this part of the world that don't have a VTL are Thailand, Vietnam, and Japan. I would be very surprised if by the end of Q1, 
VTLs aren't in place for those three. I'm not quite sure why, particularly say Japan, it isn't already. But you know, I, I'd be very surprised if those three aren't done. And then you know, that's most of this region and um, sort of much more open. It wouldn't surprise me if a lot more are added, and then those quotas really get ramped up quite fast over the first quarter of next year. Yeah, totally agree with that. Let's have a look at ASEAN right now, Dan. Your business is Southeast Asia focused. The 10 members of ASEAN have really gone their own ways unilaterally on all aspects of COVID-19 over the last 21 months. There hasn't been much coordination or policy consensus, particularly in terms of vaccine uh, recognition. Do you think that history will look back on this as a huge mistake for the region's overall economic development, not just in terms of tourism? It's a tough question because, I mean, the upside of everybody doing their own thing is you get to you get to look at sort of 10 different approaches um, side by side. And, you know, certainly, you know, sometimes the highly coordinated approach of the EU doesn't make a lot of sense either. So, you know, at, at least in this case, you know, Cambodia has been able to move faster um, in terms of one, getting its population really well vaccinated, but also reopening and has not been held back by you know, maybe the reticence of, of Vietnam to, to, to reopen. I wish there had been more coordination on a few things. I wish there had been more co- coordination on some of the the really nitty gritty mechanics of reopening. Um, so you, know, you 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 talked about um, vaccination recognition. Um, you know the EU does have a standard, and all countries are writing their vaccination registers to that standard, which makes it incredibly easy for one country to recognise each other's. I wish all of the ASEAN countries had either come up with their own standard or just use the EU standard because it would make it incredibly easy then just to, to recognise each, each other's vaccination statuses. Similarly, um, I wish we'd, we'd, we'd got to a point where we were much more public about all sharing data. So you know, we know that one of the things the Singaporean government does is it, it measures everybody who, or tests everybody who comes in here on whether they have COVID. So it sort of almost ignores the published data and says, hey, we're just going to measure everybody who comes in here and see which countries are sending us lots of COVID passengers. I wish all countries would do that as part of their testing on arrival process. And I wish they would all just publish it, because then there would be a much greater incentive for countries to actually start managing this down and being more careful about who gets on planes if all this stuff were published. And it would also let us as travellers be much more informed about which airlines are doing a great job or a not so good job about making their planes a bit more COVID free. One of the things that you've been an active protagonist for uh, for a long time is the removal of quarantine upon arrival to a destination. One of the other issues we also have in Asia uh, as well is that there are quarantine requirements when people return to their own country. So as you mentioned, some countries are opening up, particularly you mentioned there Thailand, you mentioned Cambodia, Singapore too. But one of the issues in Asia as well isn't just the quarantine on arrival, is it? It's the, the, the restrictions you have when you go back home. Yeah, it, it, it's a source of obviously you know, massive frustration to me and I think to the travel industry more broadly because it it's certainly... Uh, the very least sort of post-Delta wave where COVID truly did embed itself broadly everywhere, there was really no purpose to to any of this quarantine. With the possible exception of China or maybe New Zealand for a little period, although certainly not recently, you know, once you're at a point where COVID is, is, is spreading endemically within your population, the only reason why we originally put quarantines in place was to keep it out. 
And I think you know once it was once it was you know, well spread, it really didn't make any sense. And, and yes, you know people say, oh, you you got to watch out for new variants, but you know you you can do that without necessarily wholly closing the border or subjecting everybody to these quarantine requirements. And we've not seen any you know more concerning variants. And, and, and also, most countries aren't even doing the tests, the serological tests, to understand if there are new variants, other than you know a few countries like the UK. So it, it, it's just a an unnecessary barrier. When you look at the data points about you know how many cases were imported versus domestically driven in in almost every country, it's all been you know domestically driven. The the imported cases have only ever added up to a rounding error, certainly over the last six months. In which case, all of these quarantine requirements are just an unnecessary barrier to getting some semblance back to normal. It doesn't mean you've got to be stupid. You can still have sensible rules about requiring vaccination to enter a country as a visitor. You can still have sensible rules about you know, how you have to behave when you're in the country, about you know being masked up and being you know obeying the other rules, whether it's checking in or social distancing or whatever those things are. They're actually going to have a difference on controlling um, spread. But this this silly sort of, you know, having to sit in a hotel room for 14 or 10 or 8 days, it, it really didn't add anything other than make travel unnecessarily expensive and unnecessarily hard. Yeah, I would agree with that too. You referenced a couple of times there China, which obviously is such a vital market inbound and outbound for Southeast Asia. The signals at the moment are that the Chinese market isn't going to reopen well towards the end of next year, or perhaps even 2023. We don't quite know that speculation. But overall, taking that aside, are you optimistic or pessimistic or somewhere in between about travel in the region in 2022? I mean, I think I'm, I'm enormously optimistic because even if things just stay exactly where they are now, we are going to have a materially better year than 2021 and 2020. I mean, you know, the level of recovery that we're already at, you know, particularly in Thailand and also, you know, in, in, in Malaysia, where you know so much of the of the industry is driven by domestic travel. Even if we just stay at the point we are now, and we just have 12 months of that, and I don't see things getting worse. I really, you know, I really think we've moved beyond that, thanks to these magnificent vaccines and you know boosters that will will help. And perpetuate those. I don't see things going back. So you know, just having twelve months of of, of sort of November twenty twenty one levels is is you know reason for optimism. But I think we're going to get a lot better. You know, I think you know the you know the, there's a couple of markets that are still in a deep funk, like Bali, because of you know Indonesia's quarantine rules and Indonesia's visa rules. Bali is still in this deep funk, isn't seeing the international visitor come back. I think that problem is going to fix itself at some point. I think it will be late this year, early next year. I hope it's not later than that, but you know, it, it, even if it is, it will fix itself at some point um, uh, next year, and that will be an, another sort of enormously optimistic boost forward for the industry. So I think you've got to you've got to have a lot of um, optimism, notwithstanding your point about yes, China China could be a little bit longer before it comes back. Some very welcome optimism there, Dan. Thanks for that. So finally, just before we wrap up, a personal question for you. We're coming up to the end of the year, normally a travel period around the world. Will you be jetting off anytime soon? And if so, where are you looking to head? I am, yes. Um, uh, my, uh, my wife is American, so we are, we're jumping on a plane in a couple of weeks and we're going to spend a bit of time in the States with her family. And then we're taking the kids to the Caribbean for Christmas itself. Um, before we before we head back here around the new year, and then um, 
And then I very much look forward to getting back into the old routine of you know being in Thailand and being in Indonesia and being in Malaysia on a much more regular basis. You know, we we've all said as a company we're going back to getting on planes and being normal in Q1 of next year because uh, we feel like the time has come just to to get back to it. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Hopefully, I get to see you in Singapore or or perhaps here in KL sometime. Maybe Q1 next year, Dan. That'll be lovely, and I'm. I'm optimistic it will happen. Brilliant. Thanks very much for your insights, Dan. So that brings us to the end of today's show. Please send us your thoughts and your comments on anything I discussed with Dan or anything that we missed out. There's plenty to talk about there. Drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show or on Twitter, SEA Travel Show. Meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalog on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com or on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Podchaser, CastBox, Overcast, Podcast Addict, Stitcher, and Amazon Music. Just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each app. So that's a wrap for today. But I'll be back on Friday with the SEA Travel News Show, when, among other things, I'll be discussing the upcoming China-Laos Railway with Jason Rowland in Ventian. I look forward to seeing you there.